This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. The national report into unfounded sexual assault claims has revealed that the Hamilton rate of cases where sexual assault allegations have been dismissed is well above the national average, 30% as opposed to the 19% national average. Those are amazing numbers and not in a good sense at all. Joining us to talk about this is Lenore LeCassic-Foss, who is the director of the Sexual Assault Center uh, here in Hamilton. Uh, Lenore, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. It's great to be here this morning. Let's uh, let's talk about these numbers, first of all, and then we can get into some of the details about this. Uh, I was shocked when I saw these. How did you respond to this? Yeah, so, you know, I had really mixed feelings because I, I, I have to admit I did think they were high. I, I know this is the reality of what we hear from the survivors we work with, but I, I still... I thought, wow, that's higher than I would have thought was happening in our community. So it was it was not good. I'm hoping that 2015, the, the stats that were in the national report went up to 2014. And I'm certainly hoping that the numbers for 2015 and 16 will be lower. Well, we can only hope. Uh, Hamilton Halton actually numbers uh, well above the national average in a situation yes. like this. And we need to clarify something here, too. This is, this is a situation when they say that... Uh, these deemed to be unfounded. This is not somebody who went through the court system. These are actually, there was an investigation by police, and they've determined that, I, I, I'm, I'm reading into this now, that no charges will be laid. Is, is that about it? Uh, no, it's not even that. It's actually, so because there are there's a category where the police do an investigation, and they just don't have enough evidence. So they 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 can't say where something happened or didn't happen, but there just wasn't enough evidence. So that's got a different categorization. Unfounded, as I understand it, is where they don't believe the assault occurred. So what, do, what, what, what message does this number send out to, to, this, to this community and to those who, who may be victimized and, and, or feel that, that they want to come forward and, and, and talk about their story? So, you know, I think this this number sends the really the wrong message uh, that from our police service, because I know I certainly we work closely with our sexual assault unit and many other officers uh, in the departments. And we I know that they are trying things to encourage survivors to come forward, uh, having anonymous reporting, uh, changing policies and procedures to make it easier, to make it more comfortable for survivors to come forward. But this kind of number sends the wrong message. It says, you know, if you do come forward, there's a, you know, 30% or one in three or so chance that we won't believe that this happened. And that's not the messaging that we want to have out there. So I'm I'm really hoping that there will be a chance to look at why there's such a high number of unfounded. Any ideas, any speculation about this? I mean, you know, police are not commenting directly on this right now. Uh, Some other police services that were also mentioned in this uh, survey done by the Globe and Mail have uh, suggested that they're going to review their processes. Is, is there a weakness? Because I, you've talked to us about this before, Lenore, and we've, we've had conversations with police service about sexual assaults as well, and, and I know that you are working together, and there's actually a team, a community team, that, that, that discusses this, I guess, on a semi-regular basis anyway. So you would think that, that there's, there's not a communication problem, or is there? Well, I... 
you know what what I what I loved about the report within the Globe and Mail is that they really talked about some of the systemic things that that there is a disconnect in how I think police investigators who are generally well meaning and 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 trying the best to do their job uh, around their knowledge of neurobiology and trauma and the way trauma impacts memory and the way our brains encode traumatic situations and so I think what that basically means for your listeners is that um, sometimes when they're interviewing someone they may they may, may not remember key pieces or they may react in a way that they think might be unusual that's not quote-unquote typical for what they expect someone who has just experienced assault or is discussing a very difficult situation and so I think it's just that you know, we are, I think police services aren't keeping up in terms of some of the understanding or, in fact, imp- applying that knowledge to their investigation. So one of the recommendations in, in, from researchers within the article is saying, you know, it's not a good idea to interview victims fairly soon after the assault, which seems counterintuitive. You think, oh, I want to get to them right away so that they can remember details. But they're saying that what we know about our brains is that you need sometimes 24 to 48 hours to consolidate memory so that you actually have a fair chance of giving a more accurate picture at that time or giving more fuller details. So I think some of the the ways that, that we have been intuitively responding to these issues in terms of our investigations and thinking, oh, how we were responding to victims or how victims react is not based on what we know about the brain. Well, and and by the way, this is true not just with sexual assault cases, but almost any incident. I mean, if there's there's a, a, an occurrence down at King and James the later on this morning, and you stop fifteen people mm-hmm. and say, "What did you see?" You're probably going to get fifteen different stories because we well, are not, we you and I aren't trained to actually look at all those details and categorize those and store those details. It, it may be happening around us, but that doesn't mean that you're looking at all the uh, the evidence that that may be necessary in, a, in an investigation, for instance. No, you're you're right, Bill. But what you're talking about is actually a different phenomenon now. I am not a brain scientist, so uh, I'm sure there's others out there listening that maybe have much more knowledge about this. But what we do know is that that what you're talking about is sort of the what, when you're witnessing a situation, and you're right, the way our, our memories all work. But this is around a traumatic situation. So, you know, um, if you imagine uh, if someone pulls out a gun and points a gun at you, your your brain goes into fight or flight mode, which releases a number of chemicals. So then it your how your brain starts storing memory at that time is radically different than if you're just walking down the street, for example, and noticing something or happen to notice someone running a red light or whatever. So what what we're learning, the sexual assault is different because it's traumatic and it's different than other crimes because of the impact and the cultural meaning of being sexually assaulted, which is still very stigmatizing and causes a lot of embarrassment and shame for so many survivors, which is which is unfortunate. So we're the way our memories work is very different around this kind of situation. Well, and we've seen that happen in the past with with things that have gone to trial. You know, to yeah. use your example, if somebody points a gun at you, well, what what color sweater was he wearing? I don't know. He just he had a gun. That's all. I, you well, know, he, that's all your brain exactly. is focusing on, right? Bill, that's that's an excellent. That's exactly what they're talking about here. Is that you're not going to remember the details, like what kind of shoes was the person wearing, what color was his sweater. You're not going to remember that because your brain. That's not how we're designed. And we saw that in, in, in full force, I guess, during the Gomeshi trial last yeah. year, uh, yeah, where let's face it, there some some of the witnesses who came forward were basically discredited because they didn't have their story straight. That was the yeah. phrase that was used an awful lot of the time. And yeah. the other the other one that came out that I, I think you're also referencing here was, well, they didn't act like victims. 
Yes, for sure. And I think, you know, it, it, you know, sometimes we hear and we, we, we work with victims where they, they may have no reaction. They're just what sometimes people will call flat. They're just or, or they might giggle or might seem uh, very, very upset or not upset at all. Like there's a range of what's considered quote unquote normal to these, to these reactions. And you're right. Unfortunately, we're still basing some of our um, understanding of sexual violence on stereotypes and they're incorrect. So I think what we see is that um, even well-intentioned, well-meaning, very seasoned police officers may uh, unfortunately go down a road uh, and not use, uh, maybe ask questions in a way that are not um, helping the survivor recall the information. Uh, if they feel even slightly that they're not being believed, um, that may make them start to doubt themselves or feel concerned or, or or feel like, oh, you know, maybe that isn't how it was. Like, so I think we have to look at investigation techniques. We have to look at, you know, again, learning more and thorough knowledge of the way our brains behave and just what the impact of trauma is. What, you know, what do survivors act like? How do you overcome this then? I mean, that seems like there's there's a, a major problem here. And, and, and like you say, it's, it's not because the, the police are being lazy and it's not because they're necessarily being distrustful. Maybe they're not asking the right questions. Maybe they're not looking for the right things when they're they're interviewing somebody. It, 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 sounds, yeah. like, it sounds like it's a training issue, an education issue. I think part of it's a training issue, but, you know, the other thing that I think it's, it's important for your listeners to understand is that, you know, the police are a, a reflection, so they are working within our broader culture. And unfortunately, we still are in this knee-jerk reaction where we believe that false reports are much higher than they are, so that a lot of folks still will believe some of those narratives, uh, those ideas, oh, this, you know, this person's lying because they're a jilted girlfriend, or they just want revenge, or they want money, that there's, there's still this idea that, that false reporting, so making up that you were sexually assaulted is much more common than it is. So I think really uh, some of this is a training issue. We need to, you know, educate everybody in our communities, but including the police in terms of specialized training, continuing the training that's already happening within our police services uh, around investigation techniques, maybe looking at when we interview um, folks, uh, giving them time for their memories to consolidate. And also, um, I think there's some really promising practices in reviewing unfounded cases and having community advocates, uh, so sexual assault advocates, uh, working with police so that they actually review files. So there are, there are communities in the states that are doing this and some communities in Ontario that are starting to look very seriously at these models to increase, um, I guess, effectiveness. Is there a template that you could reference? That, uh, I mean, you know, the next time you sit down with police about this and, and, and your committee meets, can you say, look, at, can we do it like such and such a community does? Or yes. You, Yes, we can. We actually have a meeting already set. Uh, Ottawa um, is a little further along than we are in terms of looking at this. The, it's called the uh, uh, Advocate um, Case Review Model, uh, okay. VAW, which means Violence Against Women Advocate. So how does, that, how does that work? Um, so it basically works where, so the, in, in, it's happening in Philadelphia. So it's also known as the Philadelphia Model. So your, your listeners could Google that if they'd okay. like. Um, and so basically it works where folks like myself or other uh, people who work with survivors um, go through a process, get 
get cleared and they actually every year take a sample of files and review them to ensure, um, you know, was, were any biases coming in? Um, how did everything happen that was supposed to happen? Uh, look at reviewing. So it's basically just ensuring everything that was done is, everything that should have been done is done. And what they found in, in communities such as Philadelphia and other places in the states that are doing this is that it really changed the number of unfounded and in, improved uh, the experience of survivors. Yeah, so it sounds as if it wouldn't be very difficult to implement something like that here, too. I think that there's there are there are barriers for sure, and there's hurdles. And I think we want to ensure that whatever solution we make is a is, is suits our community, so is a made in Hamilton um, solution. But I think. There is a possibility we just need to have the will to get over um, some of the concerns that folks might have around implementing this. But I think there is some real promise in this and and other things around training and just increased knowledge around, uh, you know, trauma and memory. When you look at these numbers, and, and, you know, we've been talking about this all morning here on CHML News, and and, and, and like I said right at the beginning here, I get concerned that people are going to see this number and be discouraged and say, well, there's no sense in me even going forward because it's probably, you know, it's not going to go anywhere, and they're just going to look at me like I don't know what I'm talking about. How how can we get something good out of this? I mean, is there a a glass half full uh, sort of a scenario here that we can use this information to try to improve what we're doing? Well, you know, certainly I've been talking to other advocates of folks across Ontario, actually, who work with survivors. And we're really having, in some ways, these are such awful numbers. But another way we are, thank goodness, we are finally having this talked about on a national level. Because I'm going to be quite honest with you, Bill, this is something that we've been saying in our sector, in the sexual violence sector, for a long time, for years, we've been talking about the concerns of unfounded and how high they are in some communities. And for years, we've been talking about how survivors don't generally have a good experience engaging in the criminal system. This is not just about police, but all along the criminal system. And so for me, the glass half full is that we are talking about this. People are actually listening because unfortunately they weren't listening before and that we may start seeing some both provincial strategies and maybe some national strategies. You know, our Prime Minister has already commented about this, commented about this study and said that we need to do more on a federal level. So I have hope when I hear that anything that mobilizes our community to talk about sexual violence, to, to get our heads out of the sand, to recognize how often this happens to women and men is is really good news for me. Well, and, and it's been quantified now, which I guess is important. I mean, you've got statistics. Yes. There's a report now that you can actually say, see, this is yes. what we've been talking about. And, and when you get some yes. hard numbers like that, that obviously I think would substantiate an awful lot of what you've been talking to us about for a long, long time now. Yes. Yeah. So I think you're right. They, they did such a good um, analysis uh, across Canada, really, around the numbers. And it's very hard to deny this is not just me trying to advocate, even though I wish folks would listen to, to survivors and listen to those who work with survivors. This is about folks doing research and saying, look, this is what we found. We're not being biased. Um, we're looking at the story. These are the numbers that we found. And this is pointing to a very serious problem across Canada. 
Well, and uh, for those that are in a dilemma right now, wondering whether or not they should come forward, maybe that conversation with somebody at your uh, at Sashet would uh, probably be a pretty good first step, I would think. You know what? Absolutely. Thanks, Bill, for saying that, because we, we're very, very clear. We work with survivors, and we don't tell them what to do. We will give them options. So we talk with survivors, and we do work with some who engage and want to go to the police and, talk, and tell their story, and we will offer accompaniments. We'll go with survivors to the police station at any time of the day and work with them to make that report. But if someone is not wanting to do that, we will never pressure them because we know there are good reasons to not proceed in that system. So I think if someone is, has questions, they can always call our 24-hour support line. It's available anytime, seven days a week. And ask questions about accompaniment, ask questions about what the police process is. And if we can't answer everything, we can certainly connect you to resources who will be able to offer you additional assistance. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. It's an interesting uh, irony. That, uh, you, you've got a, a prime minister right now that has flip-flop on what some people consider to be a major campaign promise, uh, that about electoral reform. And you've got a premier here in the province of Ontario that people wish would flip-flop on her issue about selling off hydro. Anyway, we'll talk about the hydro issue a little bit later on. But let's let's get into this, this idea about the, the electoral reform. Now, you may remember that uh, they, they really kind of dragged their heels on this. Uh, Justin Trudeau, in the last federal election, said that would be the last election that we use this first past the post, the current system that we always have to, to elect our people. So there's going to be a new system in place for the next federal government. So they struck a panel in the all this, uh, parliamentary committee, et cetera, et cetera. Long story short, after you know, kind of running around in circles on this, uh, the, he's decided and says it's not a priority anymore. So uh, some people are shocked and, and really upset about this. And there's a couple of different levels, those that really wanted to see some kind of voter reform and those that just get sick and tired of politicians that change their minds once they get in office. Is there going to be any long-lasting fallout from this for the prime minister? Well, the issue is not going away. There's an online petition that's circulating right now that's getting an awful lot of steam that's keeping this issue alive. And is, uh, is there going to be some political pushback because of that? Let's get Richard Brennan into the conversation. Retired journalist, of course, with the Toronto Star. He's covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for many, many years. And uh, we uh, always uh, have him on, welcome guest here on the program. Richard, how are you doing this morning? Hi, Bill. How's it going? Good. Uh, p- politicians who flip-flop, this is not a new thing for you, is it? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, maybe we, if you wanted a shorter list, we could talk about the ones who don't. But <laughs> it, it just seems to be... Are, are we... Are we becoming numb to this though Richard that you know we it happens so often we read about it we hear about it so much that we just figure yeah so what that's what they do yeah in in a way I agree with you there because it comes to be expected that that uh, parties will flip-flop on certainly something during their uh, mandate but uh, this one this one here you know it, it we have to look at we have to step back and look at it it wasn't a cornerstone promise it, it certainly was a promise no question but it wasn't a cornerstone promise. And I'll tell you, I would bet what meager money I have left that the government did a poll, an internal, like a, a secret poll, to see what kind of pushback there would be for flip-flopping on this and determined that, you know, most, most Canadians really don't care about it. Is that your sense, too? Oh, I, absolutely. I, I figure, okay, we got 55,000 signatures. Okay. 55,000 signatures, from, you know, many of them people would sign sign it uh, if it, you know, was against the Liberal government in any way. Fine. So, you know, the, 
That's great. But the point is that it is it's not a major issue with people. Sure, the, the you know, the pointy-headed academics, and I know they'll resent that, but the pointy-headed academics and others, this is like a religion for them, that they, they have to change. They have to change the way the government or the voting's done. So more parties get a bigger profile. And that's, and that's what they want. And I'm not, I'm not saying they're right or wrong. I'm just saying that's exactly what they want. And most people, you know, are content. I'm not saying happy, but they're certainly content with first past the post. Well, and that's the sense I got. I mean, we've talked about this ever since he made the promise back in that election campaign. We've done numerous segments about this. And and, and I know it's not scientific either, Richard, but I mean, when, you know, we open up the lines and say, what do you people think? Uh <laughs> The ones that seem to be supportive of this are, as you say, uh, the ones that would benefit from it. In other words, usually NDP supporters or Green Party supporters that that feel as if they're getting a raw deal because they're not getting as many people elected to public office as they'd like to see. And they look at this as an opportunity for... Well, that's that's the point, (laughs) isn't it? I mean, let's face it. Uh, You know, they're they're all big proponents of, uh, you know, uh, proportional representation, you know, which, which... in which seats are allotted in a proportion to the national popular vote, which means, you know, it could result in smaller parties getting, you know, uh, getting representation. And, and that's, what, that's what the Green Party and NDP want, is that they want, they want more votes, they want more people, or I should say more MPs in, in uh, Parliament, so they can have a greater vo- vo- voice, sorry, I can't talk this morning, voice, on what happens at Parliament. That's you know, and again, I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying that's what it is. But the point is, if these parties are, you know, it seems like that's an easy way to get more representation in Parliament without working that hard for it. And I know they're going to bristle at that, but that's you know, that's what a lot of people think that this is just geared to make it easier, an easier way for them to have a greater say. Well, and, and you're right. I mean, if I were in their shoes, uh, and I'm not, uh, I, I'd probably be doing the same thing. You try to get any kind of an edge you can to try to, you know, in, increase your, your seat total. That's that's what the game's all about as far as elections are concerned. Oh, we, we know that. Yeah. But but d- does that mean throw this whole system out? I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I'll channel Churchill for a second. I mean, you know, he was talking about democracy and not electoral reform, but he says, you know, it's the worst system we've got unless you compare it to all the other ones. Uh, and it seems to be the same way. We've tried this, Richard. Remember, you uh, you covered this a couple of years ago when, when the McGinney government tried to do this here yeah. in Ontario, and, and they were talking about proportional representation as opposed to something else that, uh, that, that the Fed seem to be on to right now. But we, and, and they struck a panel. They did all the right things. And Minister Butriani, who was from Hamilton here at the time, Hamilton Mountain MPP, uh, was in McGinney's cabinet. She was the one that kind of spearheaded this whole thing, and they they it got shot down in, in, in a big way by the people at a referendum. I don't know why they'd think it's going to be any different this time. Well, absolutely. Well, that, that, I forget it. That was just, it, it was blowing out of the water. I yeah. remember that. Again, you know, every government likes, not every government, but certainly this government and, and others in the past, have talked about doing something different, bringing in a type, a different type of voting when they're running become the government. But once they get in government, it's not so bad after all. And that, and that's, you know, that's their attitude, I think. And, and you start, I'll tell you, if you want to get a headache, you just start talking about, uh, 
you know, uh, different ways of voting, you know, be, be it, uh, you know, a proportional representation or what they call alternative voting or rank voting. I mean, you, you start getting into rank voting. Oh, my God, I have to be a Philadelphia lawyer to understand it. Well, and because and, we're having that debate right now. I mean, you know, the, the, when Ted McBeacon was the municipal affairs minister, they issued that decree from Queens Park that said, you know, anybody that wants to change the voting system, any of the municipalities, uh, by all means, go right ahead. And, and now they're, 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 they're acting incredulously that nobody's picked them up on it. Why would they? I mean, it, I, I just don't get the sense that there's much of an appetite for this sort of change anywhere. No, and 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 the they've uh, you know they've tested the liberal government, federal liberal government, tested the waters obviously, and said you know what we'll take there'll be some pushback for us you know uh, flip flopping on this, but not significantly, and that's what that's what any government is worried about whether you know if they backtrack on something whether there's going to be significant uh, uh, pushback and in, in from the from the voters saying hey you promised this. They did promise it, and they've reneged, and they'll take they'll take some hit for that. That's for sure. And and as for the petition, I mean, uh, this is a private citizen from Quebec that's doing this, and uh, I, I don't know who this guy voted for in the last election. I, I have my suspicions, but and I know Nathan Cullen, the NDP uh, critic, is is the one who's jumping all over this right now, trying to get some response out of the government on this. Uh, and the the accusation, of course, is that well, the government's being self serving by keeping the current system in place. Uh, couldn't you make the same argument, Richard, that the people that are signing the petition are, are doing this in a self-serving way, too, to try to promote their political party that doesn't seem to be getting any, any legs? Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Everybody's got a dog in this fight, and that's exactly what they, they just they want. They want their particular way of voting that they think most benefits their political point of view. So... What's going to happen politically to this whole thing? I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's a petition, 55,000 names on the petition. Uh, I see 10 of these things on Facebook every day, not necessarily about electoral reform, but it's to get the, you know, the Trudeau government thrown out. Uh, and and five or three years ago, there were 10 petitions every day, seven the Harper government thrown out. I mean, this is, this is maybe part of the dark side of social media these days where anybody gets a voice and all of a sudden say, hey, see, there's a lot of momentum here. Well, of course there are. Not everybody voted for this guy, and, and so they're obviously looking for a way to, to try to do an end run around this process. I could get 55,000 uh, names on a petition, you know, to get rid of daylight saving time. <laughs> I mean, this is, it, it, it's, it's, it, it means something. I'm not saying it, it doesn't mean something, but it's not significant by any stretch of the imagination. And again, voters have, in your show and, and many other you know, uh, ways have showed that they could care less about how they vote as long as they get a chance to vote. Well, and the arguments that come forward on this, and, and, and again, you're right, whether it's proportional representation, whether it's uh, ranked balloting, whatever it is that they want to do, the argument is always, oh, it'll, it'll, it'll fire up the electorate, it'll get more people out to vote. I, I don't necessarily see that there's any evidence to show that. You know what gets people out to vote? They vo- it's to vote the government out. <laughs> yeah. That's what gets people out to vote. I mean, the last federal election, I voted in Dundas, and... And I, we, people were lined up to vote. And I said to my wife, I said, people don't come here to vote for the existing party. They come here because they want to get rid of the whatever government's in power. Well, and you, you, well, you've written about that for years. That, that you yeah. know, we as an electorate, we don't vote governments in; we vote governments out. 
And after a while, I mean, let's face it, in the last federal election, they were tired of Stephen Harper and tired whatever. Not everybody, but enough people to say, yeah, let's let's get somebody else in there. And and it happens to everybody who's in power, except for the conservatives in Ontario for a number of years. But, I mean, again, you got to ask yourself about what the circumstances were then. Uh, if people are relatively happy, this isn't going to change. And I don't think that the voting system is the, one of the reasons why the voter turnout is so low these days. I think I think that's, that's a pretty superficial way of looking at it. I think if you really want to bear down and find out why people aren't voting, you've got to look at the way the government's being run, and you've got to look at what's going on in society as opposed to simply saying, well, we're going to give you a different way to vote. That's going to make everybody happy. I, I, I don't see that. It just doesn't hold any water for me. Right now, but just think. I mean, just think what the prime minister's got on his plate. Dealing with Trump. I mean, right now, they're almost entirely focused on the way Canada is going to cope and deal with, uh, with the new president of the United States. In many ways, in trade and military and otherwise. I'd say that's quite a bit on their plate. And, again, it overshadows any need right now, at least, to uh, change the way we vote. Well, there's a refocus of this government, hasn't there been, after this U.S. election? And oh. I think we saw that with the cabinet shuffle. I mean, he's, he's got a new international affairs minister, uh, Ms. Freeland, of course, and basically he's, her marching orders are U.S. economy. Let's see what's going to happen here and how it's going to impact on this. And uh, you've you got to look at this and simply say voter reform. Do you really think that's, a, a as you say, a front-burner issue? I, I don't think it ever was. No, and uh, I would certainly, uh, I would certainly love to uh, get back on your show when you talk about less electricity prices, but that's another issue. <laughs> well, we'll get into that. That's that's a daily thing. We can do that almost any time uh, with the, with what's going on here. But it's interesting, though, as, as you say, because you always have to do this, and I don't care what political party is that's in power. Uh, there's always at some point uh, some evaluation of okay, if we do this, what's the pushback? What's the the fallout going to be from this? Is it going to be fatal? And and I guess you almost have to 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 uh, categorize exactly what the campaign promises are and just how important. I mean, this is this is not like Kretchen saying he's going to he's going to get rid of the GST, uh, or you know, or no, we're not going to do free trade, or because those were promises made in past campaigns, or there will be no wage and price controls, and bingo, what do we get after that? Well, Th- I, those I, things will come back and bite you, I would think. I've got one here too, Bill, that you will well recall. Dalt McGinty first. Elected in two thousand three, I will not raise your taxes. Oh yeah, yeah. And he brought in he brought in the, the single biggest tax increase in Ontario history under the health tax. But that wasn't a tax because he because yeah, he, he said it wasn't a tax, so it wasn't Remember a tax. That, well, I was on the. I was, uh, <laughs> oh geez, I, he would try that with us, and we just went we went insane. But anyway, um, <laughs> you know, there. But he survived. But, but yeah, that's a great question. How did he do that? Yeah, how did you know? How did he, because he did it? Well, first of all, early in the mandate, and uh, and, and 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 voters have a short memory for most things, well, and uh, and the thing is that, and it's still let's face it, it's still pretty early in the mandate for the uh, the you know Trudeau government, and and again, not not a cornerstone promise. Not like I won't raise your taxes. That was a cornerstone promise for McGinty. Yeah, but, uh, changing the way we vote, 
was, uh, like you say, it was more of a back burner promise. But you've just uh, you've just revealed another old political trick that I, I know you've seen a hundred times. Uh, the political decision is if you know, if you've got a four year mandate, if you're going to do something dirty, do it in the first year because you're right. But by year four, it's it's old news if anybody remembers it all. And the, I would think that right now. Uh, the Trudeau administration is looking at some of the stuff, like including this online petition, to figure this is just white noise. This is all going to fade away eventually. And those that are going to keep it alive are the ones that wanted it anyway, I mean, i.e. the NDP. So it's, you know, so what? Oh, and, and, and they'll, they'll always, that will be, for those folks, be it, you know, uh, university professors or the NDP or, or people just interested in voting, uh, ways of voting, that will be an issue for them regardless, in, in, well into the next election and beyond, until it's changed. And the biggest fear that uh, I think people have, which proportional representation, is that you end up with a spaghetti, spaghetti uh, parliament. You end up with a lot of little parties and no national party. And we've seen this. I mean, they, you know, they say, well, come on, you, you try these systems because they use them over in Europe. They have elections every six weeks in mo- many of those countries, Richard. I mean, don't tell me that that's a, necessarily a better system. And and, uh, and look at the the economies that are crashing in many of those countries right now, too. You have to ask yourself, maybe maybe they need some stronger leadership and a little more continuity. Maybe there's something wrong with the system they're using. And if that's the case, then why would we want to adopt it over here? Well, that's it. In particular, in Canada, it's you know it's a it's a big country with very you know with a regionally diverse country, large regionally diverse country, and that many people figure that needs a strong federal system to operate, not not uh, you know not a parliament that has uh, five or six parties. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Speaking of Chambers of Commerce, the head of the USA Chamber of Commerce was in Ottawa uh, making a speech, and uh, he tells us that Canada should not fear discussions about renegotiating NAFTA and that the demise of the agreement could actually make an even stronger trade agreement and we could actually be benefiting from this. Are you buying this? Let's ask Marvin Ryder, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University, as he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Good morning, Marvin. How are you doing today? I'm fine. Thank you, Bill. I was nervous and, and a certain amount of trepidation about this NAFTA thing with Donald Trump, but I mean, if this guy says everything's going to be fine, I guess I should be just, I'm, I'm okay now, right? <laughs> yes, you'll sleep much better. Not, well, let's, uh, let's pick a couple of things about what he said yesterday. All right. So first, this man is not part of Donald Trump's camp, uh, a candidate. Uh, what we're looking for here, his his council there, his inner circle of people. This is just a person who's a good business person who realizes that the United States is stronger with trade with Canada and Mexico than it would be without. Both Canada and Mexico contribute nearly half a trillion, $500 billion worth of trade, and he doesn't want to see the United States walk away from it. So he came north of the border to try to calm us down, and he said, look, you know, we'd be crazy. We'd be shooting ourselves in the foot to cancel NAFTA and all that's with it. So just don't panic. I would, I'd feel better about it, of course, if this was Donald Trump saying this or one of his inner cabinet members. I, I, I'm not quite sure about his view, but I do share his view. I do feel that the trade between Canada, the United States, and Mexico is too important to just toss on the dumpster. 
And what I think is more likely, rather than NAFTA just being torn up and thrown away, is that simply Donald Trump would try to renegotiate it. Now, Donald would tell you he's going to renegotiate it to benefit the United States. I don't think that's possible, but I do think it's in Canada's interest to renegotiate NAFTA, let's call it NAFTA 2.0, because 25 years ago when NAFTA was signed, there are a number of things that we don't have today. Uh, for instance, we've got all this digital stuff going on here, all this technology stuff going on. That was never imagined in the old NAFTA treaty. So I think it is time to refresh it, but I would not go into these negotiations cap in hand. Please, Mr. Trump, please, please toss us a bone to Canada. We're, we're a strong trading partner. You've got to pay attention to us, and I wouldn't be compromising unless I got something back. I just don't know if Donald's ready for that. Well, exactly. And, and again, I understand that you have to try to separate the bombast from the reality, but I'm not sure, sure that's easy to do these days, Marvin, the way that, uh, that Trump is tweeting about this, that, and everything else. And when he continues to use the word tear up, or words tear up, as opposed to renegotiate, uh, I, I think you know we, we have every right to be a little anxious on this side of the border. You do, you do, although now what I'm going to be paying more attention to is are the cabinet ministers who would be involved in this. So his secretary of treasury, his secretary of commerce, these would be people who'd be directly involved in this negotiation. The other thing, I guess, and I don't know if it gives you comfort or not, would be this is not a negotiation that happens one afternoon over a pitcher of beer. This is going to take months and months and months. My best guess, if they fast-tracked it, if they fast-tracked it, maybe a year of negotiations, more likely closer to two years of negotiations with Canada, with Mexico, with all sides bringing their concerns to the table and having to hammer out some kind of a deal. And, and again, frankly, in these kinds of deals, everyone has to compromise a little. Yes, in Canada's case, what does the United States want? Well, they want a little more access to our food markets. They're not really keen on all of our supply-side management systems. So whether it's the, the dairy industry or the chicken industry or the beef industry, they want a better flow of those goods. But we've got our demands. One of our, for instance, is our softwood lumber, all the cedar and, and pine and those sorts of things. There are some restrictions going in the other direction that we want to see changed. And if we enter into it with that kind of spirit, then we may get a deal. If we can't get a deal, remember NAFTA still exists, and Donald Trump can't tear it up. It would require the, the House and the Senate to do that, and they've shown no interest in doing that because they seem to realize how important the jobs are. Trade with Canada affects every one of the 50 states. There would be jobs lost in every one of those states if it was truly torn up and we reverted back to some old system. Whether Donald realizes it or not, he doesn't have the power to do it. The people who do, I think they do realize it. This, and, and, and by the way, I'm not directing my, my angst at, at uh, Tom Donahue. He's the guy from the American Chamber of Commerce that made the speech. Because uh, some of the stuff you're right, Marvin, some of the stuff he talked about actually makes all kinds of sense. Uh, uh, for instance, he wants to modernize visa arrangements so that skilled workers are able to pass freely and frequently around the border. Uh, and, and that's been a concern, I know, up here for many, many years. But you juxtapose that with Trump's accusation that he wants jobs, jobs, jobs in the States, and he doesn't like foreigners, and I guess that includes us, taking those jobs that Americans could have right now. So uh, I, I wish we were talking with a, a Donahoe administration instead of a Trump administration, because right. he, he seems to get it. I don't think the president does. 
Right, and add in also, of course, the travel ban, which runs contrary to the free movement of people. We've already seen in a state like Washington State, where you've got the technology companies, the Googles, the Microsofts of the world saying, you know, we need experts. We bring in consultants from around the world to help us. We want the the best and the brightest. These travel bans do nothing to help us. They actually undermine our competitive nature. Canada, again, is well advised during a time like this to remind the rest of the world that, well, if, if you can't come to the United States, we'd be happy to have you come talk to us in Canada. We may see an advantage for us developing our own businesses. Same thing, by the way, with Mexico. Something that's happened in Mexico that Donald Trump never in his wildest dreams imagined was that people in Mexico say, you know, there is more to this world than trade with the United States. Yes, 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 it's the biggest market in the world. But if they don't want to trade with us, what about the rest? And already Mexico has begun to talk to people like China, like Japan, like the European Union, where we've already talked to them about freer trade and said, you know, there are good reasons for you to do business with us. Forget about the United States altogether. We can stand on our own two feet. This is something I don't think Donald ever realized. He assumed that both Canada and Mexico were so dependent on the United States that if the United States started you know, rattling a saber or something to that effect, that, that we would run and hide. We don't have to run and hide. We can stand on our own two feet. He may inadvertently help both economies in a way that you'd never imagined before. Well, and those discussions are ongoing here, too. Because uh, I know that you know they're talking about a European deal and, and they're kind of waiting to see what's going to happen with Brexit, I guess, before they 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 you know get into the final details of that. But but notwithstanding that, though, we still rely on our neighbors to the south here. I mean, we we can't simply say, well, we'll go someplace else. Well, that's true. Again, $500 billion in trade, that's a number you can't walk away from. So we also, at the same time, while opening new markets and becoming less dependent, uh, Bill, yesterday this Council of Advisors to Minister Morneau noted that we'd be well advised to start doing these other trade deals. So we still need to do those. But in the meantime, we have to manage the relationship. But I don't necessarily have to manage it with Donald Trump. I have to manage it now with his cabinet surrogates who are being approved. It seems every day some of them are being, uh, more of them are being approved. And that really is the question is, do they understand it? And so far, I would say most of the cabinet are leaving the tough talking to Donald behind the scenes. They have a much better sense of what's on the ground. And so I, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm uh, optimistic about all of this because we don't have to deal with the Trump. We can deal with these other people who I think do appreciate it. But to give you another example, we're going to need the support, not just politically, but of the union leaders. Uh, if I'm part of the auto workers, if I'm part of the steel workers, I would want to be talking to my American brethren on this and saying, folks, we've got to work together here. The auto parts sector or the auto sector in general is so huge, and the free movement of goods back and forth between this border is so huge. If we both started being very protectionist about this, it's all going to fall apart. We've been buddies for a long time. Let's reinforce this with the powers that be. And I think it will work. It's just going to take uh, some months before it will all set in. Is is that going to be even doable, though, Marvin, to your point about union leaders? Because I, I got the sense over the years that, that NAFTA's been in place that, that on a philosophical level, unions are opposed to this whole thing. And well, they, I'm hearing far more protectionist talk than I'm about, right. about cross-border talk. Right. And so this, again, if I, if I take our North American free trade deal as, as three different partners, Canada and the United States, we seem to get along just fine. And to the extent there's protectionist talk, it does not seem to be as much about people north of the border, but certainly Mexico. This has been the concern. We know, for instance, in Ingersoll, just down the road, there are 600 jobs that are being transferred down to Mexico. The head of the Canadian auto workers, uh, now Unifor, the, the merged union, uh, Jerry Diaz, has said, you know, this is, uh, this is atrocious. 
precious. This is exactly why NAFTA has to be renegotiated. We've got to keep those Canadian jobs Canadian. I've seen letters to the editor in the Hamilton Spectator, people saying we need a Trump in Canada who draws a line and said no jobs will ever be exported anywhere ever again. So I, I get where they're coming from, but it always seems to be about the Mexican jobs. And, and I think there's actually, we've seen in the last round of labor negotiations between the three, big three and Unifor, some of those jobs come back. In, in a multinational world, there's a fluidity to where you're going to assign them. As long as our dollar stays where it is, somewhere around the 75-cent level, it is still very economical to make cars here in Canada. And, and I think there's going to be pushes to do this. We've already seen, as part of those deals, the big three companies planning to reinvest hundreds of millions of dollars in Canada. I don't think they're going to walk away from it, but you also can't just take those relationships for granted. You have to keep reminding people of these relationships and, and, and pushing your case forward constantly. The Mexico question, I think that's going to be interesting in any deal. How do we protect the jobs here while also allowing some development in Mexico? It may be that net new jobs go to Mexico, but at least the existing jobs stay here. That'll be part of those negotiations. By the way, to the point, that, you know, and I seen some of those letters as well, but, you know, we, we need a Trump up out in Parliament Hill, draw the line, no jobs lost here. Uh, I, I just re- would remind those people that uh, those are not Canadian companies, all right? There is no Canadian auto industry. There are Canadian divisions of American and Japanese firms here, but uh, it, it, you don't have the same sway. I mean, Trump can talk like that to, about the big three down in the Detroit area because that's those are the American companies. Uh, the Prime Minister or the Premier or anybody else can't do that because those guys can pull the plug anytime they want, as they just did in Ingersoll. Right. So another, th- another thing to realize as well, Donald Trump and, and his relationship with the business community in general, one day they love him, the next day they hate him. You know, one day he says, I'm going to cut your corporate tax rate. Great. That's more profits for me. I love you. The next day he says, I'm going to cut regulations. Great. I don't want any more regulations to get rid of the red tape. But then the next day he says, I'm going to put a tariff and I'm going to, you know, if you bring a good back in the United States, wait a minute. And now with the travel ban, you actually have leaders, CEOs of very many companies who are opposed to it. They haven't figured out whether they love Donald Trump or or hate Donald Trump just yet. That relationship is quite stormy. And so we're all sort of sitting here in a three ring circus watching the ringmaster call the shots. Uh, Bill, I I think I can tell you this, and I imagine many of your listeners feel the same way. I'm getting Donald Trump fatigue. My my, uh, uh, internal clock says, uh, just shut up, Donald. Just stop talking for a week. Let's sort out what you've already done, what all the rocks you've tossed into the pond and all the waves that you've already tossed there. Let me sort that out before you toss any more in. I'm not sure we're going to have that luxury. I think a Trump presidency is going to be very much like a a three-ring circus, and we're just going to have to run to keep up to him. Well, and when you've got that sort of a narcissistic uh, cloud that's hanging over the White House right now, what does that do when you get into quote-unquote negotiations? I mean, to go back to the initial days of of NAFTA, Marvin, uh, it was the Mulroney and, and Reagan administrations that began those talks. Uh, and they were pretty much on equal t- footing. As a matter of fact, they had a great deal of respect for each other. They liked yep. each other. Yep. Uh, and, and I think that probably you know, eased the, those negotiations. I know there were some tough issues that had to be dealt with there. But when you, when you got the two principals that seemed to think this is worthwhile and, hey, I like that guy and he likes me, I, I don't get that sense from Trudeau and Trump. 
Yeah, trust goes a long way. Well, to Trudeau's credit, uh, I'm going to give him credit for this. He could have jumped on an anti-Trump bandwagon at any time he wanted in 2016. There were a number of people who thought a Trump candidacy, even presidency, was crazy, and he refused to do that. He refused to say negative things about him because I think he realized one day he'd sit across the table. My best advice to him, just as I would give the same advice to the Mexican president, is you know, keep your powder dry. What do I mean by that is... Go into these negotiations. Don't go in there with cap in hand. Don't go in there thinking you've got the almighty Trump. Don't go in starting by making concessions before the meetings even begin. Go in, have the meeting, have a tough negotiation. If it makes sense to concede a point, concede a point, but also make sure you're getting something back in return. That's exactly the way Donald does his own deals. But what he's done historically is he does so much bluff and bluster before the negotiation begins, he almost uh, undermines his opponent's courage, if you will. He gets them coming in groveling, please, sir, please, I so want to do a deal with you. I'll give you whatever you want to get the deal. And that's how he wins in those negotiations. We cannot do that. We've got to say Canada's a valued trading partner. We're a valued company. We're an equal in many ways, Donald. You know, we can have a serious conversation, but I'm not going in there by making a series of concessions just because you huff and puff and tweet. I'm not going to do that. And so far, Trudeau hasn't done that. And again, to his credit, neither has the Mexican president. They both have held their heads high. And I think that's the right way to approach it. If you give in too much to begin with, you can never retain the high ground. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.